I invite you all to be seated and pray with me. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the time that we have together this morning to worship you, uh, to hear your word read. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your gospel and to also receive Holy Communion together. Lord, in this time together, I pray that you would be glorified above all and that we would be edified and convicted to follow you. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, please go ahead and open to John chapter 4, verses 5 to 42. Or you can look at the back of your bulletin, and those verses are there as well. Well, it's a joy to finally be back. I, it feels like it's been a while since I've, I've seen all of you. I've had a lot of military obligations and the honor of uh, performing a wedding for one of my soldiers over the last uh, three weeks, and it's taken me away uh, from Sunday service. So it's great to not only be back, but also to be able to preach the gospel with you this morning. It is a joy to me, and there's a lot to cover today. You heard it yourself, verses 5 to 42. And so I won't spend too much time uh, recapping last week, but by way of a reminder, or if you're joining us for the first time online or in person, last week we began the Discovering the Real Jesus series on kickoff Sunday, and Gene preached through John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, where we heard the story of when Jesus cleansed the temple. All right, but today, our story fast-forwards a little bit, and we see another side of Jesus. All right, it, it begins at verse 4, verse 5, um, where Jesus decides to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. He wants to take a break from the Pharisees in Judea, and so he chooses to go to Galilee, and the verse says he had to go through Samaria. It's important to note here, most people would actually go around Samaria. All right, it's a much longer journey for the Jews to go around Samaria, but they chose to anyway because they saw the Samaritans as inferior, and frankly, the Jews saw the Samaritans, excuse me, the Samaritans saw the Jews as pretentious and privileged. And does that dynamic sound familiar? to anybody this morning. But Jesus, being Jesus, rubs against the cultural norms and chooses to go through Samaria anyway, despite what people might think of him, despite the fact that neither the Samaritans nor the Jews loved or respected one another, he decides to go through Samaria to go to Galilee. And yes, he's on his way to Galilee, but he's also more immediately on his way to a very important encounter uh, with a woman who needs exactly what Jesus has to offer. And we find ourselves there in verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A lot of people make a lot out of the time of day, right, where Jesus is going to this well. Um, it would have been the sixth hour, which is noon, with the six o'clock starting time. So some have seen a connection with this crucifixion of Jesus, which also takes place around noon. We see that in, later in this book, John, in chapter 19, Jesus again expresses his thirst on the cross. That's uh, chapter 19, verse 28. And it's important to keep in mind, so I want you to, to log that in your brains for us to go back to in a bit, or maybe write it down. But for now, let's see the significance of Jesus encountering somebody who's labeled as untouchable to him in his culture, a Samaritan woman. And as we'll see, no less, a Samaritan woman living in sexual sin 
but there he is, meeting her at the well when no one else is there. He's alone with somebody who's not only seen as racially inferior, but morally inferior. But he meets her there, and we'll see why in a minute. But I want to just do a quick lesson on, on Jesus' thirst, right? He has a legitimate human need. All right, um, for the youth group um, among us, you may be familiar with what I'm about to say. Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man, right? And so that's just a little side note there. When we see Jesus expressing legitimate human needs, it reminds us who Jesus is. From the start, John is telling us he's fully God, right? The word was God. We see that in John chapter 1. In John chapter 4, we see that legitimate human need that Jesus is also experiencing. So he has a physical need. This Samaritan woman has a spiritual need. There's two different kinds of thirst that John is flushing out. I just thought that was kind of cool. I wanted to mention that. But let's go ahead and move on to chapter nine, uh, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So we talked about how the Jews viewed the Samaritans as inferior, right? Not just inferior, though, but untouchable, ceremonially unclean. And what that meant is that Jews believed that Samaritans were in a continual state of ritual uncleanliness. They could not enter the temple to worship. And so by Jesus, if he were to accept this water from the Samaritan, in fact, to some, even just by talking with her, Jesus is now ceremonially unclean. He is not allowed, unless he goes through ritual cleansing, to worship in the temple just by engaging in this interaction. This barrier is so great between the Jews and the Samaritans that to be affiliated with the opposing race in any way would impact how people viewed your own worthiness to worship the Lord, right? We just saw that, and Jesus is now not able to enter the temple because he is ceremonially unclean. But aren't you thankful that Jesus doesn't buy into the barriers that we set up for ourselves between ourselves and others? He didn't then, and he doesn't now. Let's continue to verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus is doing what he tends to do, and he's speaking with double meaning here. Right? We've talked about in the past, Jesus loves to talk in parables. Right? This isn't a parable, but it is a literary device. It is a double meaning, because that phrase, living water, literally refers to fresh spring water. It's the kind of cold, flowing, refreshing water that would come from a subsurface stream that you would want to have your well placed over. So you don't get swampy, nasty water. You get good, cool, refreshing water. Yeah, I grew up with a well in my backyard, and it was under the back porch. It never used. Why is that? Because it was swampy water. And it smelled pretty bad, too. We never did anything about it. I don't know why, but terrible smell. So I can tell you, you do not want the swampy water. You want that living water, that subsurface stream. Now, it's obvious this is not what Jesus has in mind, right? This literal living water. We'll see that in the following verses. He's talking about the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, which results in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for all who repent and believe in him. But that's not um, what the Samaritan woman understands him to be saying at first. So let's continue into verse 11 and see how this young lady responds. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So we just talked about that, this living water 
um, is the gift of salvation. It kind of goes over the head a little bit, right? Which is fair. It wasn't very clear, right? But instead, she goes back to that practical thing that she's looking for, right? Real, fresh water. But instead of just staying there, she decides to also reinsert that barrier that's set between her and Jesus as a Jew and a Samaritan. You see in verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? When she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's not relating with Jesus. She's not saying, Are you greater than our father Jacob, you and me? She's talking about herself and the Samaritans. Again, bringing up the barrier, this divide that's been created between the Samaritans and the Jews because the Samaritans saw themselves as the true children of Jacob and therefore saw the Jews, again, as pretentious and undeserving of the title that they saw themselves as having as the people of God. Again, the barrier is set up between her and Jesus. Jesus, again, doesn't take the bait. He doesn't buy into our barriers. He says to her in verse 13, instead of responding to her statement, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So instead of playing with that barrier that's been placed between him and her, he goes to what is important, the purpose of why he came, the purpose of this conversation, that every single person, whether you're white or you're black or you're Samaritan or Jew or male or female or American or Iranian or Democrat or Republican, yes, even Democrats and Republicans, have a thirsty soul, a longing in their spirits for something more. And Jesus has that answer, as we'll see um, as we continue in our passage today. See, Jesus breaks through every barrier. Jesus shatters all norms in order to offer to this woman what she truly needs, because Jesus shatters all barriers to satisfy the thirsty soul. Jesus shatters all barriers to satisfy the thirsty soul. Well, the woman responds in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's starting to get that this is kind of an interesting thing that Jesus is offering her, right? We see that here. But she's still thinking about it practically, physically, and understandably so. She knows she's walked up here alone that afternoon. She's understandably sick and tired of going up to Jacob's well alone in the heat of the day because she's evidentially not welcome to accompany everybody else who would have gone to get water in the morning when it was still cool out. I don't know how you guys picture this walk, but for me, when I picture her, this woman walking up to the well, I kind of had in my mind this quaint image of like a backyard well, you know, a little house on the prairie stuff or something, where just walked up this little tiny hill, kind of drew water up from the bucket, and went back down. Well, Jacob's well was on a place called Mount Ebal, and it's not the largest mountain out there, but it's not any small hill either. So Mount Ebal stands opposite of Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was the place where Samaritans believed God ought to be worshipped because Mount Gerizim was the location of many Old Testament blessings. It's a special and sacred place for them. Mount Ebal is over here, right? They're about the same size, and if you Google them, you'll also see that they're very barren, right? They're little trees, but nothing that would give you cover. So here is this lady walking up to the heat of noon, carrying two heavy jugs 
that will get even heavier with water, with no assistance from anybody else. And she's walking up a hill that is not a small hill, but rather, if you've ever seen a high school track, you guys know what a high school track looks like? Two and a half laps around that track to get to the peak of Mount Ball. It's a long walk. It's an exhausting walk. And it's a shameful walk for her, too, because as we'll see, there's a reason she's walking alone. So a picture of this, by the way, as well. Like, right now it's nice outside, right? But you remember how it was, like, in August, even just a few weeks ago? Really muggy, really hot. It got that way up there walking up Mount Ball. Temperatures of over 90 degrees and muggy. She wants relief from the shame and the physical frustration of carrying these heavy jugs. But Jesus knows that to get to the relief that she truly needs, they have to go deeper than that still. Let's continue to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So many of you have heard this story before and probably came into it knowing why she's walking alone. Right? But if you're wondering why she's walking alone, we don't get an explicit written answer right, as to why is this Samaritan woman all alone. But here's what we can infer. Based on her relationship history and the fact that all the women would be getting water at the cool of the morning, I think we can reasonably guess that either she was trying to avoid them, they were trying to avoid her, or a little bit of both. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's a little bit of both, right? There's shame there, not wanting to confront what she's dealing with, but there's also being labeled by that shame and by that sin, which is what they place on her. She is not welcome to accompany them in the morning. She feels stuck, right, and alone, doomed to an endless journey of walking up and down this mountain alone, carrying the burdens of the jugs, carrying the burdens of her shame. And I wonder how many of us come to church on Sundays and feel stuck and alone and are carrying the sin and the shame and the weight of that on our shoulders, and we feel labeled, and we feel lost, and we feel like that's all we are. And we, it's like those two heavy water jugs we're carrying up and down that hill. Every day we go to work, every day we come to church, every day we see the friends and the families who know all that stuff about us. And I wonder how many of us are doing that. But that's why Jesus showed up, right? To free us from our sins. Because often sins are a broken attempt to fulfill a legitimate need. Right? We're fallen people. We're broken people. And so we try to fulfill legitimate, hungry, deep, real needs the wrong way, looking for love in the wrong places, right? That's what sin does. But Jesus offers true fulfillment and true satisfaction where he thirsts. And he does that in this story by breaking down these cultural barriers, breaking down these shame barriers, and offering living water to thirsty souls no matter what. And this woman at the well, like us, is a thirsty soul. All you got to do is look at the track record given to us to know that, right? We don't need to know what happened to her five husbands or the situation with the guy who was, at, who was not her husband to know why somebody serial dates, right? Why somebody throws themselves recklessly into something, whether that's work, whether that's a sport, whether that is politics or social media. The desires to gain fulfillment, a thirst for belonging, a thirst for love, a thirst for identity, something that she legitimately needs, but only Jesus can legitimately satisfy. But she just doesn't know it yet. Because she's at the well, 
because she's physically thirsty, right? That's what she's doing. But Jesus is at the well because she is spiritually thirsty. And only living water can satisfy our deepest thirsts. You know, we're all thirsty for something, right? And to that end, football season's back, yeah? We're all excited about that. It's pretty cool. Did you guys watch the Browns game on Thursday? Anybody besides me? Yeah, it's nuts, right? Like, I mean, for, way too close, right? But still nice to have a win. See, Browns fans, we mourn, but we don't mourn as those without hope, right? <laughs> Every once in a while, they come in on us. Uh, and that was out of context, but that's okay. So not typically, but not, I'll make an exception there. So anyway, earlier this week, I'm going to get off of that one before uh, we get lost there. Earlier this week, Bethany and I watched Tom Brady's first game as a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. Anybody else watch that? Well, they lost pretty bad to the Saints, right? And I don't know if you ever see the camera angles when Tom Brady loses. They go right up on his face. Every single time they go up on poor Tom Brady's face, and his soul is crushed. Every single time he loses. Don't get me wrong, it sucks to lose, right? Like, has anybody ever played sports and you've lost a game in your life? You know it hurts, right? It's, it's frustrating. It's infuriating. But look at the look on his face, and you see that there's something deeper there. And if you've ever heard an interview with Tom Brady, you know there's something deeper there than just the loss of a football game. It reminded me of an interview Tom Brady had at age 27 after he won his third Super Bowl. At 27. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up, and I'm 27. His third Super Bowl victory in 2005. He has an interesting interview with a 60 Minutes correspondent, Stephen Croft. And I actually was trying to figure out, what was, it, what was this interview? I can't remember. And I actually providentially heard it on a sermon earlier this week. And I want to share it with you as well. So this is an excerpt from Tom Brady. There's times when I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be something more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? Croft asks him, well, what's the answer? And Brady just says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why do we become workaholics? Why do we thirst for these things? Why do we serial date? Why do we pour so much time, money, and effort in making our children into something we want them to be? Because we are looking to satisfy something deep inside of us that only living water can satisfy. And to that I say, come to Jesus. He is enough. He is the only one who can satisfy that thirst. Because I'm going to tell you, um, knowing that I myself carry with me some moments where I've disappointed my parents, I can tell you your kids aren't going to do it. Having frustrating days at work here and elsewhere, I can tell you it's not your work that's going to do it. Having my sports career end very suddenly due to an injury, I can tell you it's not sports that's going to do it. Only Jesus can satisfy. Did that feel kind of personal to anybody in this room? It felt personal to the woman at the well as well, and so she changes the topic. Let's look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming 
and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I imagine like many of us, when we cut deep into personal conversation, she didn't like where that was going, right? So he changes the topic. And she goes right back to that artificial barrier that's placed between her and Jesus, between the Samaritans and the Jews. And Jesus, once again, as he always does, doesn't get stuck at our barriers, doesn't get stuck to the things that we set between ourselves and others. Instead, he cuts through them. He reminds her that the prophesied Messiah is, in fact, from the line of the Jews. So he's like, hey, salvation is from the Jews. You worship what you do not know. We worship what you know, what we know. So don't be cocky. But he also teaches her that these divides between worshiping in Jerusalem or worship on Mount Gerizim are superficial because they focus on where we worship, not how or who we worship. See, the worship the living water produces is worship in spirit and in truth. And what does that mean? It means worshiping the one true God based on what he has revealed to us in his word, based on what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and worshiping him in a way that glorifies him. That's worship in spirit and in truth. And God owns all of creation, right? And that's why it doesn't necessarily matter where this worship takes place. Christ's kingdom covers everything, and therefore the worship prompted by living water can happen anywhere, but what matters is that we are worshiping the true God in a way that is glorifying to God based on what he's already done for us. Growing in the knowledge and love of God is the focus of worship in spirit and in truth, but it actually doesn't reduce the importance of coming together on Sundays to worship. It enhances and it increases that. Because how do you understand how to worship God in spirit and truth alone? The answer to that question is you can't. You must gather as the people of God, submitting under the faithfully proclaimed word of God, to know about God. It's a community sport, right? You come together. So you cannot worship God in spirit and truth unless you are submitting to God's word, which is proclaimed over you in a duly responsible way as a Christian community. She hears that, and again, the Samaritan woman tries to change the topic. She says, and she doesn't know she's talking about the guy she's talking to when she tries to change the topic, and that's irony, peak irony. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So this woman walks away from the well, runs more like it, down to the community that has rejected her, and says, hey, come see this guy that told me all about the things I did that you don't like me for. She's really amazed at who Jesus is, and while she is gone, Jesus then turns to his disciples, and we're not going to read all of it because we're running out of time, but in John 4, 31 to 38, he basically tells the disciples, go do what the woman at the well just did, because I've prepared this path for you, and I proclaim the word of God. And I wonder, like, how many of us are actually that amazed at what Jesus has done for us? Um, I was curious about some stats this week, so I did some Googling, and if you had to guess what gets more views on Sunday, football? Or church? Just somebody shout something out. Make a guess. Football. Football? That's what I thought. Three times as many people on any given Sunday are either in church or watching a church service virtually than are watching NFL on any given Sunday. And that includes the Super Bowl. 
That makes me wonder something. That makes me wonder what are we talking to these people about that we think don't want to hear about Jesus. They'd rather hear about football Monday through Friday. What are we doing with our time with these people who are thirsty for something? What are we talking about? What's the message we're proclaiming? Because if they'd rather be there watching a church service than watching football, I wonder where your neighbor is right now. You know, I wonder where your best friend is right now. Are we that amazed at what Jesus has to offer us that we'd go tell people who are already thirsty for what Jesus is preaching and proclaiming? Are we going to tell them about that thing they already want to hear? Or are we going to keep it to ourselves because we're really not that impressed? We're not that amazed. We'd rather talk about um, how Baker Mayfield threw two touchdowns on Thursday and only one interception. See, the reality is, if you've really received living water, living water creates a contagious witness. Living water creates a contagious witness. You know, it's been said that preaching is the act of a beggar showing another beggar where the bread is. You know, it's the act of a thirsty soul showing another thirsty soul where the water is. It's the act of showing somebody who's on the path to death, the path to life. Once we've tasted and seen the glory of the living water of Jesus Christ, how can we not share that good news with somebody else? You might be wondering, why is this so important? And we're closing up here, so bear with me. Why is this living water so important that once we've tasted it, we need to share it with other people? Well, we talked about this when we kind of looked over verses 6 and 7 today, right? We talked about it because it costs God his only son. That's why it's so important. Remember verses 6 and 7, Jesus is thirsty, yeah? And then at noon, um, that same time of day, in chapter 19, verse 28, he says, I thirst. Yes, he's fulfilling prophecy. And those who um, have read through that um, story or the Old Testament know he's fulfilling a prophecy there when he says that. He's also physically thirsty. Going to the cross is grueling and exhausting. Uh, it's a painful time for Jesus, but there's something else there too. See, Jesus is spiritually thirsty on the cross. How do we know that? Because he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God has, his, has the Father turn his back on him on the cross. He looks away from him because he's bearing our sins on the cross. All that, like, all those things that lie to you and told you that they would be enough and they'd be fulfilling, he took them on himself and suffered the spiritual thirst that comes with every single one of those things. A life that's not fulfilled in Christ is a thing that he experienced on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. See, he spiritually emptied himself on the cross so that in him, you would be spiritually full. He died so that in him you could live. It cost everything, and it tells us how to read Scripture, too. Because what does it tell us about who we are in this story? Typically, when we read stories like this, where Jesus interacts with a sinner, I'm sure we have somebody in mind, right? We're thinking about somebody. Well, let me tell you, if that somebody isn't you, you're reading about the story wrong, okay? Let me be so bold to say, we're not Jesus in the story. We're not the brave disciples who at this moment who by the way cower away later but for now they're all about this jesus thing but that's not who we are either we are the woman at the well who is thirsty and in need of what jesus christ has to offer offer we are not the savior we are not the prophets we are not king david or anybody else who is brave and impressive in the story we are always the sinner and jesus is always the savior and just like the samaritan woman who seems pretty excited about this, if you ask me. We don't actually get a clear answer, does she become a disciple of Jesus? But she seems pretty amped up about it, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she likely did. And if she did, the labels that she had given to herself and the others had given her, the shame that she had given to herself and the others had given to her through her sin is stripped away on the cross. 
with Jesus. And it says she's given a new label, a child of God, by adoption through Christ Jesus. And she's given living water, true and sufficient hydration for her spiritual thirst, welling up to eternal life. And so as we go from this place, or if you're watching online and you're getting nervous because kickoff is in three hours and you want to check your brisket, I beg you to consider this. If you've not tasted the living water, please do not wait any longer. You can repent of your sins at any given moment. You can turn to Christ at any given moment, and it can happen right now. And I pray that if you take that step today, and if you don't know what to do, you come talk to me, come talk to Jean um, after you're done talking with the kids downstairs, or shoot us an email. You know, my Christchurch email is always burning to hear from you. Uh, it's zjones at christchurchwestler.com. This is just too important to delay any longer. Why do we wait for these things? They're so important. See, in Christ, you will not thirst, but you will have your thirst quenched and living water welling up in the springs of eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you love us and are patient with us, that you call us to you. We ask that as we continue our time together today, that you would nourish us with communion and with prayer, and that you would continue to be glorified in all we say and do as we go through this week, all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.